my goodness, turkey day this week already. You know, this year might be one of the fastest moving that I can remember in a long time. Do you feel the same way? I hope whether it's, it's fast or slow moving for you, that you are enjoying it every moment. Because this is not a drill constant, listeners. This is life. And we've got to make the most of it. Now, with this being Thanksgiving week, let's dedicate our episode to a memorable Turkey Day game in the NFL. Ironically, the one game that immediately came to mind when I was thinking through this was notable because of a gaffe that was in the game that was for the ages. And the game occurred in 1993 and in Dallas. Dolphins prevailed over the Cowboys 16 to 14. Great game, actually. And Dallas, not exactly sitting in a snow belt, it experienced a snow-slash-ice storm that day, and the field was covered with both by the time this instant classic of a game was over. Now, both teams were good that year, and both were hoping for a playoff berth and strong showing in those playoffs. And the game didn't disappoint, but it's now remembered for a player on a specific play that now lives in infamy. The player was Dallas defensive lineman Leon Lett, and I'm sure it might now be ringing a bell for some of you because Lett committed a blooper and lapse in that game that lives on forever. So the game had less than 10 seconds left. Miami's down a point. Dolphins kicker Pete Stojanovic was going to try a 40-yard field goal to win it. Now That's a tough shot considering the weather conditions. Lo and behold, Dallas blocked the kick, and the ball rolls down to around the five-yard line near the Dallas end zone. The camera pans to the Cowboys owner, Jerry Jones. He's raising his arms in celebration on the sideline. You then see legend Don Shula. He's on camera. He looks upset and glum on the Miami sideline. Then it goes over to Troy Aikman and Michael Irvin. They're hugging on the Cowboys sideline. But wait, they notice, those two notice, that something strange is going on down near the goal line. Their, their heads turn towards the play. And the camera then pans to the field again. And there are players scrambling around for the ball. Confusion reigns. The announcers for this game were the classic tandem of Dick Enberg and Bob Trumpy. Remember them? And they watched the replay like everybody else because they missed it. So they're watching the replay like everybody else in the country to see what they missed. And then we all saw evidence of what happened. Leon Lett, for some reason, instead of letting the ball roll harmlessly, slid into it trying to recover it. He touches the ball, didn't grab a hold of it, and an alert Dolphin player secured it. I will never forget Bob Trumpy watching the replay, realizing what just happened, and yelling, It's Leon Lett! No! Classic. The rules, they tell you that means first down for Miami where the ball was recovered, which was the Dallas five-yard line. One second is left on the clock. Here comes Pete Stojanovic again, and instead of a 40-yard field goal, he has a chip shot, and he nails it. Shula is now smiling on his sideline, Jimmy Johnson, he's got a blank stare as the Dallas coach with a what-just-happened look on his face. Miami wins. Game over. Now, that Thanksgiving game was watched by a massive audience, as you can imagine, and it was all everyone talked about the next day, the next week, and for a lot of the rest of the season. Sports teams, coaches, and probably a lot of business people were all using that gaffe as an example of how personnel need to be aware of situation and rules at all times. Yeah, poor Leon Lett taught everyone a valuable lesson. And for that, we are grateful enough to dedicate this episode of The Far Middle to Thanksgiving 1993, Miami 16, Dallas 14, and Leon Lett. But wait, before we're off making connections of the week for this episode, 
we can't leave Mr. Leon Lett just yet because that game on Thanksgiving 1993, it was not his first or even his most famous gaffe. In fact, it wasn't either even for 1993. That's because Leon's first masterpiece of gaffe occurred in January 1993 in Super Bowl 27 in front of an even larger audience. Late in the fourth quarter of that Super Bowl, Dallas was absolutely killing the Buffalo Bills. So it's not like what Leon was about to do mattered, but it still sticks in history because Lett recovered a fumble on the Dallas 35-yard line, and he's running it back toward the end zone for a touchdown. When he reaches the 10-yard line, Lett slowed and he held the ball out as he approached the goal line to showboat. But Leon didn't notice Speedy Bill's wide receiver Don Beebe not giving up on a play and chasing him down from behind. Beebe knocked the ball out of Lett's outstretched hand just before he crossed the goal line, which then sent the ball through the end zone and resulted in a touchback that cost Leon Lett his touchdown. Now, Lett later said he was watching the Jumbotron as he was running and trying to do what he called a Michael Irvin, where he put the ball out across the goal line as he crossed it, so you can't say that he wasn't honest. Yeah, Leon Lett holds quite a distinction. He has two spots on ESPN's all-time worst NFL plays for these two gaffes. Now, remember our recent dedication to Jim Marshall and his wrong way touchdown slash safety? He should consider himself fortunate. It could have been worse, as evidenced by Leon Lett and his tandem of gaffes. All right, let's dive into episode 131. And I'd like to focus this installment of The Far Middle walking through an evening I spent in Philadelphia about a month ago with an esteemed group of business people and thought leaders. I was invited there for a dinner conversation with about two dozen leaders from the eastern part of Pennsylvania who wanted to hear about my advocacy efforts including the far middle in my interaction with all of you awesome constant listeners, as well as my book Precipice and talk some energy policy, but broadly just to discuss the state of doers in America today, the value creators, those creators, enablers, and servers that I wrote about in Precipice and how the struggle against the value appropriators, what Ayn Rand tagged as the looters and what I reference as the leeches, how that's going. Now, this was a group of center-right-minded individuals, and each one was a trailblazer in their own right and with their own profession and industry, and they weren't shy about engaging and speaking their minds. It was an awesome night. I left energized. I thought uh, some insightful threads came out of the discussion, so I wanted to share with all of you constant listeners for what it might be worth, because I think much of the conversation is applicable to all of us, no matter where we are or what we are currently doing. And frankly, it's a great topic for this late November episode with our sports dedication because it makes a connection to Thanksgiving. Value creators have much to be thankful for today in America, in places like Pennsylvania, and in cities like Philadelphia. But there's also a lot to be concerned about when one looks to the future and contemplates troubles, trends, and developments. So let's start our journey of connections, tapping into my evening with leaders in the city of brotherly love in late October. So I land in town that day and driving through South Philly, it reminded me of a point I wanted to make that evening that connects to those types of working class neighborhoods across America. And that is what Saul Alinsky referenced as the class of have a littles, want mores. Lower and working middle class that aren't poor enough to receive handouts, but there aren't well off enough to be where they desire to be. In his book, Rules for Radicals, Alinsky defined them as, using his words, Between the haves and have-nots are the have-a-little, want-mores, the middle class, 
torn between upholding the status quo to protect the little they have, yet wanting change so they can get more, they become split personalities. They could be described as social, economic, and political schizoids. Generally, they seek the safe way where they can profit by change and yet not risk losing the little they have. That's how Saul Alinsky summarized that demographic. And that sort of defines the world that I grew up in and a lot of us grew up in. And it defines what South Philly once was for sure and what probably still largely is, at least to some extent today. And that middle class is the lifeblood of so much of free enterprise and capitalism and the American dream and the Western Republican democracy way. To the extent that those wishing to wage war against those things, they necessarily wage war against the middle class, which is exactly what the left is doing as we speak. Now, we talked that evening about how the middle class is a motivator for my advocacy and for many people out there fighting the good fight today. A lot of nodding heads and affirmation were displayed around the room when we were discussing that. And yeah, the middle class is something to be thankful for today and also something to be worried about because it's being put under extreme duress via policy by the left. Now, some of you may be worried with my referencing Solinsky and rules for radicals. You shouldn't be. I disagree, of course, with the premise of the book, but I'm interested in reading it and will use it to help me because it will help me become better informed in the end and to further refine my thoughts on key matters of interest to me. So read books and certainly disagree with them if you're so inclined, or don't read ones that you find disagreeable. But for goodness sake, don't ban them. That's a dangerous and slippery path to bad things. Now, if Alinsky is not your style, Let's make a connection to another way that I used that evening to describe the group that motivates me to advocate on behalf of. This demographic is brought to us by the Yale social scientist William Graham Sumner, way before Alinsky's time, and Sumner coined the term forgotten man, the person in America too poor to have political influence and too well off for handouts, a demographic taken for granted under the best of times and utterly abused by those in power during the worst of times much like what is going on these days. Sumner's words summed it up quite well for the forgotten man or woman. Quote, he works, he votes, generally he prays, but he always pays, end quote. Amen to that. By the way, when Sumner wrote those words, women didn't have the right to vote. Crazy. And the definition of forgotten man or woman represents stakeholders we all know and love. It's flyover country. It's blue-collar workers in domestic energy and the building trades and manufacturing. It's small business owners. It's mom-and-pop savers. It's taxpayers. Yep, we know them all, and we love them. The forgotten man or woman should serve as a motivator for all. Are we pursuing endeavors that further and advance the standing of the forgotten woman? Are we advocating against policies that erode the standing of the forgotten man? We should be. Using the forgotten woman or man serves as a trusty filter for segregating good policy from bad. And then once we sort, advocate intensely but civilly using the Apache philosophy of going where the best fight is. The concept of filtering policies, it connects quite neatly into a topic that also arose that evening, which is being careful with definitions these days, particularly that of the liberal versus the leftist. I've said it before on the far middle. I am a proud classic liberal who values and desires protection for individual rights. And that's very different from a leftist who desires to have the state or some higher authority dictate to the individual 
what will be, how they're to live, and what goes. Now today, media, academia, and commentators, they play fast and loose with these definitions, and they do it on purpose. They desire to blend the liberal with the leftist. Why? Because the classic liberal is, of course, good, and blending it with the leftist gives the left a halo effect. I know two things for sure. First one, one can be both a conservative with regard to certain thoughts and a liberal with respect to others, and I'm a great example of that. I want the individual to decide what they say and read, who they love and marry, what health decisions they make, and who they pray to if they pray at all. Most people, they're going to call that liberal. But I also desire government to be minimal and not to outspend what it takes in, for value creators to keep their hard-earned value, and for the free market. That's what people would typically tag as conservative. And I think being both of those, as I just defined them, is not only possible, but also desirable. I think it's a form of libertarian, and it works when followed for the forgotten man or woman, for the have-a-littles and want-mores for America. The second thing I know, I know for certain you cannot be a leftist and a liberal in the classic sense at the same time, because a leftist will have the state dictate norms and what is possible, ripping away freedom and choice from the individual. Yeah, it will always be packaged by the left as doing so in the public interest and for the downtrodden, but that's all malarkey, as a certain commander-in-chief calls it. The left stomps over the tenets and crushes the foundations of classic liberal thought. It can't be both. They are mutually exclusive, constant listeners. And when you hear someone warranting that they are or can be both liberal and leftist, call them out and ask them to choose one or the other, sticking to the definitions of each. Don't allow them to defile classic liberalism. That discussion got a lot of debate going that evening, I can tell you. And as I said, it was awesome. And it connects us to an issue that garnered even more debate and discussion than most of the evening, in fact. I asked a simple question that was consistent with a commentary I published at the start of 2023 that you can read on nickdeolius.com titled, America Needs a Third Party. Which the question was, of course, do we need a third party such as something like No Labels or something akin to Ross Perot back in the day. Now, that query got things rolling at dinner that evening, and there were strong positions across the spectrum. From the, hell no, we don't need another party, what we need instead are better candidates from the existing parties, to those who thought, why not another party? Now, I want to expand for you why the why not another party view Uh, might not be a bad idea. What were the rationale or reasons that were put out there? Well, first, there is a lot of precedent for it in other functioning Republican democracies across the globe. This would be nothing new. Second, America, we've got a history of that very thing. Parties rise, they decline, and then they vanish. The Whig Party is a great example. It used to be the Whigs and Democrats in the United States, And then leaders like Lincoln, they switched to a new party, at the time Republican, and they started winning elections. The Whigs vanished shortly thereafter. And by the way, at its founding, the Republican Party supported classic liberalism and economic reform akin to today's conservatism, while opposing, of course, the expansion of slavery. Sounds like what I was describing a few minutes ago as libertarian. So we know third-party movements can happen and advance the ball in the United States. Third parties are not new to us either. Now, what everyone agreed upon that evening was how the two-party system 
coupled with binding closed primary election processes, they can be gamed and manipulated to put forth more extreme candidates that create really strange options in the general election. So candidates for office, they become two very different people these days. There's the person who stands for one set of views in the primary, and then they become a more moderate, quite different person running in the general election for the seat with a very different set of those views on the very same issues. Now, which version of the candidate is the genuine one? It's often hard to tell or assess, and that makes the really important decisions that voters are left with, it makes it harder for them to make. So keep third parties in mind, constant listeners. No labels, RFK Jr., Vivek. It's a real possibility in times like these. Political parties and election process, those are good lead-ins to the next connection we draw to in episode 131. It's a topic that came up a few times that evening in Philadelphia, the concept of institutionalizing. Now, what in the world do I mean by that? Well, I'm going to draw upon a line in the great Stephen King classic book and movie, The Shawshank Redemption. I'm sure you've seen the movie, but if you haven't, please drop your plans for this evening and watch it. It is awesome. Anyway, uh, one of the main characters, Red, the convict, he was played in the movie by Morgan Freeman. And there was a part that hit home when Red said, and I'm, I'm going to quote here, but I'm not going to try to sound like that iconic voice that is Morgan Freeman. Anyway, Red said, quote, these walls are funny. First you hate them, then you get used to them. Enough time passes, you get so you depend on them. That's institutionalized, end quote. Now, Red, in that movie, he defined it perfectly, constant listeners, and it applies institutionalized. It applies to government and its policies today. The focus and attention are often on solving this problem or addressing that item, but more than ever, the real and common shared objective of all these policies is to institutionalize the individual within the administrative state and the expert class. We've experienced the shock and awe campaign of state institutionalization in recent years. Just think of the following. You got COVID mandates saying what you're going to wear on your face, when you can walk in a park, when you can fly, when you can work, and what drugs you have to take. And as I've repeated many times, I am not anti-vax. I get my flu shots and I had my COVID jabs, but I am anti-vax mandates. I have no desire to force someone else to have to do something with their body that they are not comfortable with or to allow government to dictate how they have to do those things. How about climate change policies banning this appliance or banning that car? When you drive, in what size house you live in? There's Fed monetary policy that makes addicts of the capital markets to free money, and the government that delivers the free money is pusher. Unless we forget an education system that teaches no tangible skills needed in the private sector, but looks to instill ideology of the state in the children. And there's science. Remember the last episode when we discussed science as a philosophy versus science as an institution? Today, science is now the state-sanctioned version of the science. Finally, we also see the institutionalization of enterprise, where the economy is now driven by state action and policy, which pushes out private sector investment, measured on a scale of trillions of dollars every year. But our legacy in this nation is a counterbalance to this institutionalization, which leads to another connection. One of the ideas for the evening's conversation was to be a bit provocative, 
by throwing out their reasons to be optimistic about the United States and the world, and then reasons to be pessimistic, and where we see other nations that may be past the point of no return and why. In hindsight, it was an awesome idea, I must say. Yeah, sometimes I do come up with a good idea or two, because the topic got things rolling with a debate and the back and forth. So why should we be upbeat about America's future prospects? Well, you know, this nation remains blessed with vast natural resources from farmable land to river systems to deposits of just about every energy and mineral source imaginable. And if we want to develop them, we can, with it being just about any feedstock needed for modern manufacturing. And we remain largely isolated from major threats in other parts of the planet. Those two ponds to our east and west, the Atlantic and Pacific Oceans, they serve as great firewalls from foreign threats even in modern day 2023. So the world has shrunk with technology, but physical buffers, they still matter. We have, and let me emphasize this word, relatively secure borders with relatively stable neighbor nations. Canada is obvious in this regard. But Mexico is, again, relatively secure, although it seems our leaders are doing all in their power to make it unsecure, to literally incentivize making it less secure. Think about that. We still enjoy a vibrant community and culture of doers, those who create value and they innovate. And maybe it's not as strong as it was a generation or two ago, but it still is impressive and gives some degree of competitive edge for us. The United States holds the fiat currency for the planet, and that allows us to do all kinds of things in all kinds of different ways. Now, we abused the heck out of the past 15 years with regard to fiat currency, but we still enjoy the dominance of the dollar for now at least. And our population demographics, they're not dire. You know, they're a bit challenged with aging, but we are not collapsing like Europe in places like Italy and Germany, or in Japan, or yes, even in China. We'll get to those nations in a minute. And America's built a massive market for much of what a modern economy produces. If things go to hell in a handbasket with the global economy, we can still retreat to a decently robust domestic market for critical mass. Europe can't do that, nor can Japan. And last, we still have a strong, I'd say bordering on dominant military, particularly to keep trade open globally and when we need to focus on only one flare-up or region at a time. Yeah, so this group, it saw a lot to be positive about, as do I. But there's also much to be concerned about when it comes to the United States. I want to share a few of the key areas of concern that I heard or offered up that evening. And you might notice that a lot of these are sort of corollaries or howevers or buts to many of those American strengths that we just discussed. As in, we hold an advantage, but it's been eroded. Or we have a strength, however, it's facing significant risk in the near term. So let's jump into some of that wall of worry. First, we don't make stuff anywhere near to the extent we used to in this nation. Our base manufacturing has been eroded, and it's hard to see how we're going to start to build it back in the private sector quickly and efficiently. And there are huge impediments to doing so, from higher cost of capital, to labor trends, to inflation, and of course, to regulation. Energy policy, that was a huge worry. And that was a little surprising, you know, considering this was an eastern Pennsylvania group, but they get it, with energy being the feedstock of just about every other process and activity. So if we lose our competitiveness with energy, we lose our competitiveness basically everywhere else. And our current energy or climate policies, they seem designed to achieve that very result. And worse yet, 
our policy hands control of our energy security to China. Yikes. I said that um, our military was a strength, especially when being able to focus on one flare-up or conflict at a time. Right now, we're fighting a three-front war. We've got Ukraine, Israel, and yes, Taiwan, China. By design, I might add, because Iran and Russia and China, they're all colluding to spread us thin. And our Navy is in desperate need of rebuild and refresh, and a major jolt forward. You know, the Navy extends power and keeps global order like nothing else in the military. And we're watching our Navy rust away, literally. Now, maybe the biggest concern is one we discussed on prior episodes of The Far Middle, what I call the math of our national finance or financial situation. That's $33 trillion in debt and growing, a whopping 120% debt to GDP ratio, uh, $2 trillion under the proper math of annual deficit which is so extreme it's mind-boggling. Interest rates are rising. Entitlements aren't even counted in a debt, but on a present value basis, they dwarf the $33 trillion in debt. And less people and entities paying taxes and more and more taking tax revenue. Many of us see no way to avoid a massive devaluation of the dollar, which may result in losing that fiat currency status. Any of you remember those uh, morning reruns of Lost in Space? Danger, danger, Will Robinson. Yeah, that's maybe the message when it comes to our national finances. And there was a concern I would categorize as our national will and psyche being eroded and twisted by the left as the left assumed control of key institutions, the legal profession, academia, government, NGOs, the science, the medical communities, and so on. You get control of those and you start to mint new ideologues and you get to steer policy That's bad news for doers and individuals. Yep, that is a a decently large wall of worry, but it could be worse. We talked about nations that evening that might be doomed sooner or later, maybe sooner, especially if globalization starts to backtrack or a global recession hits. Europe, as a continent by and large, the consensus was it's in big trouble. And the EU's days may be numbered. Um, Germany in particular looks to be in order for a huge step backward. Its economy was manufacturing-based, it was export-focused, but now China views Germany as an export competitor, and Russia views Germany as a piggy bank for energy extortion. Uh, Both of those things, they bode ill for German manufacturing. China, the consensus there was that it is also in trouble. And you can see this with real estate and credit markets now, but those are just the surface and just the start. China has to import all of its energy to make stuff, and it is experiencing demographic collapse and aging. What's really scary is that China's leader, Xi, he knows this, and desperate people, they do what? They will do desperate things to avoid or distract from problems like start a war or go nationalistic. Hmm, I think we may be heading toward that Taiwan conflict sooner than we would like. All right, let's put a bow on episode 131, shall we? Love the way uh, this summary of a fun evening in Philly unfolded last month. I hope you got the takeaway benefit and gist of the conversation around the table. The premiere date for this episode is November 22nd, which is the anniversary date of the assassination of John F. Kennedy back in 1963. This was the fourth presidential assassination in a nation that at the time was less than 200 years old. But it was the first assassination since the Secret Service began protecting presidents. At the time, 
assassination of a president was not a federal offense. You believe that? So Oswald would have been tried in Texas, but he was shot, of course, which was the first live homicide caught on TV. And Oswald died at the same hospital as Kennedy two days and seven minutes after the president. Now, when I was a kid, I always remember adults who were alive during that week in 1963 telling me they never forgot where they were when they heard about the assassination. And that feeling would unfortunately be experienced by the next generation when September 11th rolled around in 2001. Then we ended up knowing what it felt like. Let's hope our kids don't get to experience the same thing. Seven days, we will reconvene. Happy Thanksgiving, everybody.